Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. My name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Angela Young and Melissa Caldwell about their edited volume, Moral Foods, The Construction of Nutrition and Health in Modern Asia, which is out from the University of Hawaii Press in 2020. Moral Foods is divided into three sections, Good Foods, Bad Foods, and Moral Foods. Using case studies from 19th and 20th century China, Hong Kong, India, Japan, Korea, and Malaysia, the total of 12 chapters investigate the moralization of food in modern Asia. Each chapter shares the volume's overall interest in both the moral regimes of food in the context of modern nation building, and also in the context of the bodies and lives of consumers. So uh, thank you both for uh, joining me on the podcast. I know this was not easy to find a time that worked for uh, the three of us spread across the world, and I really do appreciate that. Uh, So I'd love to hear uh, how this project came together and how the two of you came to uh, work on this project together. Okay, um, let me begin. Um, uh, I'm Angela. So uh, I'm one of the editors of this uh, book volume. Um, when, When I... Uh, I was asked to uh, host a conference um, together with the Asian Society for the History of Medicine in 2014. At that time, I was doing a project, a research project on the um, history of, uh, or, or on the introduction of the notion of nutrition in Chinese medicine. So, so I thought, why not? Um, so I, I think would be maybe... Um, a, a theme that would interest me and many others would be food and health. So, so that's how I called uh, uh, the, the conference in 2014. Um, it went well. And then, but at that time, I had no idea how I would, you know, do an uh, edited volume. And I have no preconceptions on, on how this volume will look like because I don't know what the papers will look like. So, so that was um, that. But then um, at the end of the conference, we had a kind of a final panel. And somehow 
the um, the idea of uh, good foods and bad foods emerge naturally. So so I so we thought it would be nice to um, do a book volume on um, good food and bad foods. And I thought at the at that time calling the volume the moral aspects of food. And then David Arnold reacted immediately, saying, "No, that's too long. Why not just moral foods?" So that's it. So I call the book "Moral Foods." Um, and then when we have picked the papers, we have discussed the theme, and I thought it would be good to have somebody who is not an Asian historian to be a co-editor, because the person will provide a fresh look um, at the volume, provides new ideas. And um, so, so that's how I found Lisa, uh, who is who who was a wonderful uh, colleague, and and we did um, edit, edited the volume together, um, and that's the volume that that you see today. Maybe maybe we can ask Lisa why she accepted my invitation. <laughs> Thanks, Angela. Um, I was really excited when Angela invited me to join this volume because it just sounded like such an amazing project. I'm an anthropologist and I work in Russia in the former Soviet Union. And so I've long been interested in questions about how food has been central to the ways in which the Russian and the Soviet state, then the post-Soviet Russian state, um, has used food to create um, particular lifestyles and ideas about ideal citizens and how citizens have used food to create their own visions of a good life um, and to kind of respond to everyday realities. And so my own research has been comparative in the sense of thinking about socialist and post-socialist societies. And so when Angela invited me to join the fun with this volume, it became a really interesting way for me to think about questions around socialism and post-socialism through that Asian lens. And you know, not all of the, the societies we're talking about or that are included in this volume are socialist or post-socialist, but so they have their own historical context. Um, but it all then allowed me to think more about the questions that are of interest to me and kind of see how Russia fits or does not fit within this broader global context. Yeah, and I think this uh, introduction that the two of you have given together uh, draws out very nicely some of the strengths of the book, which is that it's both uh, very particular in its uh, regional case studies and also speaks a great deal to much larger themes. Um, and I want to get into those themes by jumping into the introduction first. Um, so the book for our uh, listeners is divided into three sections, uh, good foods, bad foods, moral foods. And the individual chapters look at the moralities of food in China, in Hong Kong, India, Japan, Korea, and Malaysia. And it's focusing on the modern period, the 19th and the 20th centuries. Um, and so today on the podcast, rather than trying to cover the entire volume, especially because we don't have all the authors here, uh, one of the unfortunate aspects of doing an edited volume on the podcast um, is we're going to try and look at a representative chapter from each of the three sections. And there are 12 total. Uh, three for, uh, excuse me, four for each of the of these sections. Um, before we get into the individual chapters, I want to look at some of the ways that you frame the chapters in the in the introduction that you uh, co-authored here. So maybe the most basic, uh, important question I'd like to ask is, what is your working definition of moral foods in this volume, and and why is that important? 
Um, and through these case studies, uh, what have you found about who determines what constitutes a good food, a bad food, or a moral food? Um, I, um, you know, at the beginning, I explained why uh, I did a volume on Asian foods because it was the the fact that the the conference was organized by the Asian Society for the History of Medicine. That, that's about Asia. So, so Asia as a region is, um, is a given. So, so I have to work, um, deal with that, that area and, that, um, and also that uh, a time frame, which, which is the modern Asia. And I think um, uh, when I was organizing the conference and then organizing the, the volume, I thought that modern Asia is a great context for analyzing the question of um, moral foods in specific social, political, economic, and cultural settings. Um, I I don't think we have a a very strict um, definition of what's moral um, because because we are talking about Asia, which is a very um, diversified region with, you know, you have named the countries that we have uh, studied and they are all very different with different traditions. so it, it is more interesting for us to look at um, how each country, how each case would define morality in, in, its, own, in its specific context. Um, I think modern Asia is particularly interesting because um, it was a, in, in terms of time, it was a period of a colonialism, a time of war and revolutions. And actually, most of our papers deal with that um, that history. And Asia is a place where um, different traditions meet. Uh, you know, on the top, you, you, you see the, encou- the encounter of Asian and Western traditions uh, in medical traditions, in food traditions, in all kinds of traditions. And then Asia is also a place where different um, Tradition, uh, traditions uh, uh, meet. You know, uh, the Japanese tradition is very different from the Chinese one. The Indians are very different from the Chinese. And even though we put them all together in the same basket, calling, calling them Asian, actually they are very different one from each other. Um, so, so I think um, with that period and that region given, I think we can have a, um, a book on food and nutrition um, uh, on, on the history of food and, tish, uh, on, and, and nutrition um, in a, uh, a very rich and fascinating one because, because each case is specific and each case is different. Um, I think most of the chapters reveal unique features related to the changing framing of diseases um, considered to be food-related. I mean, it's not um, clear that some disease are related to foods, others are not, and how would you frame those diseases? I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic, and, and we have chapters dealing with that. Or understanding the body, uh, the Asian, what is the Asian body? Is it different from the Western body? And in also in particular, its importance in, a motion, in modern Asian nation building. Um, I think that is a theme that runs through many of the chapters. Um, on working on the book, um, mor- mor- morality and foods, um, as we see it, um, you know, appear to us to be almost redundant. I mean, 
which food is not moral, which way of eating is not moral. Actually, everything is moral, but um, the morality is is different in different contexts. You can talk about it in the in the context of gender relations, in the context of um, of nation building, um, in the context of war, in the context of um, uh, diseases. So. Um, and so each chapter, I think, deals with the question of good and bad foods in a specific historical moment in modern Asia, which can be further expanded. So you find, a, um, uh, I think, an interesting mixture of questions and mixtures of methods and mixtures of uh, results. So, and when we compare the volume with one that um, was published a little bit earlier than ours, um, I'm sure that you have heard of this book. Um, about, um, it, it's about American food, uh, written by Helen Weitz, called Moral Food, a Modern Food, Moral Food. Um, it's about American food that underscores self-control or self-restraint in eating. And that is totally absent in our volume. And um, so I think... Um, so I think we seek profound differences between food traditions that reveal some of the deepest core values in their respective cultures. Um, and I think with that, bearing that in mind, we, don't, we didn't actually try to um, frame the, the, the notion of morality or moral in a very strict way. I think we let our authors to write um, the papers according to their interests and methods. And I have invited Lisa to be the co-editor precisely because, um, as I said before, that she could, you know, uh, provide a fresh look uh, at the volume and she's from a she works on a different culture and she can give us all kinds of suggestions and, and I think it was very valuable uh, for the volume to have her as a co-editor. Lisa, would you like to add anything to that? And if you don't mind me getting a little bit uh, away from the the... the... Uh, script here, so to speak. Uh, what was that? What was that experience like for you? You know, Angela's talked about bringing you in as sort of an, an outsider to provide a different perspective. What was that like being an editor uh, for a volume that was, in some senses, outside of um, your own research uh, purview? Right, and it was outside my own research area in a couple of respects. First, I'm not an Asianist, um, even though a lot of the research that I do. I have to pay attention to what's going on in other socialist, post-socialist countries, but I'm not an Asianist and I'm not a historian either. And so there were different methods at play as well. And so um, it was a little daunting, um, but it was very exciting too, because to be brought into the conversation with the scholars that Angela had brought together for this was really exciting to um get a deeper understanding of not just you know the history of Asia, but the multiple histories and the ways in which Japan or China or um, India in, had these interplays with one another and how food traditions and health traditions were sometimes very similar, how they were very different, how a similar, how a single issue um around health or nutrition or state-sponsored um, health regimes looked very differently in two different contexts at the same 
moment, whether that was in terms of how states and citizens were engaging with those things or the values that were attached to the food, to the health. Um, And I think for me to work with Angela was to get this education in this part of the world that was just absolutely fascinating um, and really helped me think about my own work. Um, In many ways, as we worked on the volume, um, where I came in to help was really because I was not an expert. I could ask questions that in order to help pull out ideas or concepts so that the conversations the authors were having um, would make sense to scholars or to readers not familiar with the area. Um, I had to leave all the expert knowledge to Angela, um, but but it was also a wonderful opportunity to work with Angela. She's a great colleague, um, and we had a lot of fun, I think, in most cases, working on this volume together. Yes, and I also learned a lot from Lisa uh, through working with her. It's, it was a great experience. Well, it's nice to hear uh, somebody describe any part of the academic writing process as fun. So uh, this has been a, a novel experience for everyone involved, I'm sure. Um, some, some of those uh, strengths of the uh, breadth and depth, the combination of the two, um, and the sort of diversity of uh, topics, uh, themes, uh, really begins to come out right away uh, in the first chapter, which is in the first section, Good Foods. Um, and so this section overall looks at the creation of modern Asian food norms and rules. Um, and that first chapter that I just referenced is by Francesca Bray about the construction of rice as a symbol of self in Japan and Malaysia. And that's a you know certainly a, um, a, a contrast, a comparison that's not often made. Um, the second chapter uh, is by Jia Fu, who looks at the goodness quote unquote, of soy milk in China. Uh, Izumi Nakayama's work, which we're going to talk about in a moment in more detail, is about the emergence of breast milk as good food in Meiji period Japan. And then finally, uh, Michael Dew writes about Chinese experimentation with nutrition during the Second World War. So I want to, uh, in this section, highlight uh, Nakayama's chapter, which is chapter three, Moral Responsibility for Nutritional Milk. Like many societies, Japan has a uh, long history of wet nurses. Uh, Nakayama, though, points out that beginning in the late 19th century, uh, pundits, doctors, educators, etc., began to advocate for the replacement of wet nursing by exclusively uh, breastfeeding by the mother. So why was that? Um, and how does how does Nakayama uh, explain that? Um, it seems to me that she places this change in the context of modern nation building and the morality uh, and sort of utility of motherhood to the state. Um, I, I uh, talked to Isumi uh, recently, again, you know, on this chapter, because you asked this questions, and I want to have her latest thought on this. So, um, and, and then with her chapter, that's what I got out of it. Um, I think what she tries to uh, say is that actually in, well, you are a Jap- Japanese historian, a Japan historian, so probably you know something about this already. And, and that is um, uh, for her, uh, the Japanese mothering tradition um, uh, has changed from the pre-modern period to the modern period, to the Meiji period. Um, she, she said that women in the pre-modern period, women of a certain status, meaning uh, high-class women, aristocratic women, already breastfed their children, their own children, because breast milk was believed to transmit personal characteristics and values. So, so the baby 
uh, sucking your milk will kind of acquire um, the mother's values and the mother's um, character, character and characteristics. So, so these women would not allow wet nurses to, to nurse their children because those wet nurses are from, from lower classes. So, so it's pointless to, you know, to ask a, 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 a woman from a lower class with low, you know, uh, with, you know, a kind of vulgar culture to nourish your child. And then that tradition, I think, not asking wet nurses to, uh, to nurse your child, um, that tradition got strengthened after the, um, you know, in the Meiji period, in the modern period, because upper, upper class women were now encouraged to breastfeed their babies also for a new reason, and that is uh, recommended by medical doctors and social commentators. Here she quote somebody called Fukuzawa Yukichi. Um, they encouraged the biological mother to breastfeed because breast milk is of better quality nutrition um, that produces stronger babies and thus a stronger nation and strengthen the modern patriarchy. So, so that's where a modern nation building is coming in and, and relating re, related to this uh, specific practice of breastfeeding. So breastfeeding became a patriotic act. And this act, this um, uh, breastfeeding by a biological mother uh, also became a woman's assigned duty in the modern nuclear family unit with distinct gender roles. Um, The clear division of labor provided social social stability for modern nation building. And this is crucial part of the ideologies of um, good wife and wise mother. I mean, that's a very well-known uh, a slogan, right? Um, uh, you have to be a good wife and a wise mother, and that that idea uh, contributed to the formation of another uh, vision of the modern Japanese nation, and that is rich country and strong soldiers. So, so that is um, uh, why that took a different turn uh, at the late nineteenth century, and um, so that so that you know breastfeeding mother is contributing to a prosperous nation. The Japanese here, I would just like to add a little bit on, again, on what I've just said, and that is, uh, even though we are all Asian nations, and and actually there are some some, uh, difference in details that are very significant. Um, China also adopted the the slogan of um, a good wife and wise mother. That idea came from Japan and and, and the Chinese adopted it, but it's very different. The idea of a good wife and wise mother is very different. Um, it's very interesting to compare. Um, best, um, you know, um, for the upper class Chinese woman, best breastfeeding by a wet nurse is not that bad because you you hosted the wet nurse, so she eats the same food as you as yours. So. Um, uh, uh, the, the nutrition of that milk should be fine. So that is, I asked, I asked Isumi about that, and she said that Japanese wet nurses, they may not be hosted by the family. They could travel. So, so it's a very different setting. You know, the wet nurse is a different person, you know, in China than in Japan. So that's one difference. Um, and also in China, I think there's another a key difference, um, uh, something that probably we don't see in the Japanese history, and that is 
the use of wet nurses in Chinese history has a very important um, reason, and that is that will allow the woman to get pregnant very quickly after the birth of the child. So a big, a big family is a good family. It's a virtual family. I mean, you, it, it, it fits all the Confucian requirements. You have to have a lot of children so that, so that um, your ancestors could be properly worshipped. Right. So, so I think um, wet, uh, wet, uh, wet nurses or breastfeeding by wet nurses had very different uh, significance, very different uh, role to play in Japan and in China. So, but this paper uh, by Izumi is particularly about Japan um, of the uh, modern period. Lisa, would you like to um, either add anything to this from your own experience in editing the volume or from uh, that, again, that outsider perspective of uh, thinking about this as someone who's not, as you said, an Asianist? Sure. I mean, one of, there are many really exciting things about this chapter by Izumi um, that help us think about breastfeeding and the relationship between mothers and children around nutrition around the world in different contexts, right? And it becomes very clear very quickly that feeding a child is not really just about feeding the child. It's really about creating particular types of individuals, both the child and the parents, the mother, right? And why um, women, why mothers are expected to make particular choices and what that means for them and their roles in family and their communities and their societies. And so I think, um, especially as Angela was saying, already putting Japan and China in comparative context and seeing how wet nurses have been understood very differently, um, you know, in breastfeeding more generally, what that role is, helps us ask different questions about the um, imperative to breastfeed, say, in American society, and why women are being asked to do that, or what the, the moral pressures are, the cultural pressures are, and then, you know, look at other societies as well. And so I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about this chapter is it's not just about Japan, it really helps us think about all of these dynamics, the gender roles, the age roles, the class roles, the economic roles, in a bigger context. Yeah, and that um, I, I had the, that same impression that this was, you know, a, a nice chapter uh, that demonstrates the strengths of the the section overall um, in giving us um, a perspective that is rooted in a very particular uh, place and time, but that has uh, a lot to say uh, and a lot to suggest about other times and contexts. Um, and that continues in the second section, uh, the four chapters in Bad Foods, uh, which are concerned with how foods become bad, even dangerous, and the multiple ways in which badness or danger are constructed and defined. Um, so David Arnold has already gotten a mention here, and I want to focus on his chapter on moral foods, especially on rice, uh, during the period of British colonial rule in India. Um, the other three chapters address bad foods in South Korea, Japan, and Hong Kong, respectively. Um, so Teho Kim looks at discourses on rice, barley, and wheat in modern South Korea. Uh, Tatsuya Mitsuda writes on the creation of badness around sweet confections in Japan. And Robert Peckham takes us to Hong Kong to examine bad foods, uh, again, in a colonial British colonial context, in the context of those uh, British colonial public health pro programs. So we're going to talk about David Arnold's chapter, uh, which is chapter five, The Good, the Bad, and the Toxic.
Arnold divides the moralization of Indian food by British colonial authorities into two categories, as I understand it. And the first of these is the sort of technical body of work, as he puts it, on the inadequacy, even the possible toxicity of foods eaten by starving, quote unquote, backward Indians out of desperation, uh, but that then actually has the effect of only worsening that situation. So for the British, the other category is less technical and more, uh, as Arnold puts it, judgmental, namely that staples such as rice are inferior to wheat and other European preferred cereals and grains. Uh, so tell us how this plays out in the uh, colonial relationship, um, what Arnold finds about the effects this has on the understandings of rice in India, uh, especially as we enter this sort of, uh, during the colonial period, this era of scientifically grounded understanding of beriberi as a nutritional deficiency associated with rice. Yes, um, Arnold uh, is a great, great scholar, and and um, he's one of the first who, one of the first modern um, historians of medicine who worked on beriberi uh, in Asia, and I was much inspired by his uh, earlier works, and and I did a, a, a separate paper in a separate volume on beriberi in China, and and the comparison with the Indian case and the Indonesian case are uh, uh, you know fascinating. Um, uh, Arnold, of course, is a historian of British uh, India, um, and then um, he, he, you know, his chapter about rice. I think if, if you contrast his paper with Francesca Bray's paper on rice in in Malaysia and Japan, it's it you know it's a completely different. You, you see a completely if you if rice is a person, then you see a very different person uh, in Japan, Malaysia, and 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 India, and rice. Um, was discovered to be a bad food, as um, Arnold puts it, because it became a significant racial marker. I think he he puts it very clearly. Uh, what he means is that rice was an Asian food, and Asia at that time, you know, as a as a race, was considered some kind of inferior compared to the white races, right? So so rice has this 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 was was kind of a flag. As as a a, uh, a nation food, and and if you know, I I, I cannot remember if um, Arnold put that in the paper, but but um, Berry Berry was framed as a nutrition deficient disease by a Dutch doctor Eichmann, who worked in Batavia um, in the late nineteenth century. And um, he did experiments with chicken, uh, feeding them with white rice, and found them. They they found that they had weak feet after eating a lot of rice. So so that's how he he discovered the um, uh, this disease, which is nutrition related, which is a new idea of framing disease in in modern Asia in in the world actually. Um, and um, and Arno's um, uh, uh, take on the disease in British India indicates very clearly the racial aspects of the medical discourse of the disease. Um, he also indicates um, uh, in his paper that the story of bad rice ultimately became one of the redemption as Indian writers later show that rice is actually no more harmful than any other food grains in causing ill health. If you read it carefully, he, he said that. And, and I think uh, 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 that is a, a very interesting statement. And, and that is also echoes what I have um, 
done on China on on uh, uh, you know supposedly a same disease called beriberi. Of course, in China it has a different name. Um, there is a very interesting divergence between the disease descriptions and the explanation of that disease uh, in in works published in English and in Asian languages. And if, if you look at the the descriptions of the disease, you would say that they are not the same disease, right? So, so that is very interesting for me. That the very very question is is fascinating because it's a, it's so hard to pin it down, in a colonial period. Um, you know, I was much inspired by Arnold's earlier study of very very in colonial Asia, not this one, but an earlier one, in which he he described a, a lot more on the on how it was um, discovered and so on, and I did a, a study of very very from the perspective of China, using both English, Chinese, and Japanese sources, and the differences in the discourses of the disease. Uh, you know, in English, it's very very. In in Japanese, you must know it's kokake, and in, in Chinese, kojiaoqi. Which means in the Japanese and Chinese term, it means um, a, a bad chi for the legs. Okay, um, and and the differences are fascinating. Um, the disease was translated in Chinese by an old disease, uh, 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 old disease name. It's 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 already it existed. The term existed already in the in the seventh century in China. Um, and then with similar symptoms, but then the doctors, the Chinese doctors, explain the disease by overindulgence in sex and alcohol. So it's a disease for the rich. It's not a disease for the uh, racially inferior, like you know what um, what the uh, uh, colonial doctors would say. Um, so, so the link between beriberi framed as a nutrition dis- deficiency disease and rice, a typical bad Asian food was created essentially by European doctors observing Asian practices in their colonies. When medical representatives of different Asian um, countries met at the congresses of the Far Eastern Association of Tropical Medicine, that institution, I'm sure, I'm sure that Nathan knows, um, is very important, it's extremely interesting. They held some 10, maybe I, I cannot remember the number of conferences all over Asia, and they discuss what they consider as tropical diseases in Asia. And beriberi is one that was you know, uh, heavily discussed during those years in ni- 1920s and 1920s, uh, 30s. And you could see the deep, in, in those, com- you, know, the, you can find the, the, um, um, the reports or the, um, uh, uh, of, those confer- uh, of those congresses in, in major libraries. And if you read the articles, you would see the deep, disagreement between those, the doctors uh, from China, Japan, and the colonial doctors from Southeast Asia and South and Southeast Asia. Um, the Chinese doctors, though also trained in Western medicine, like Wu Lianda, who, who dealt with the, um, um, the um, plague in Manchuria, um, who was a Malaysian Chinese, but who was trained in Edinburgh, and, and and he was um, uh, invited by the Chinese to deal with the plague. And then he also was a um, regular participant of the Congresses. And he he didn't believe that rice was the cause of beriberi. I mean, he was British trained, but he didn't convinced. He wasn't convinced by this explanation. And they were more, actually, they were more drawn to some other explanation, like the bad environment, which is the traditional Chinese explanation. That is humid, hot, and low-lying places, 
that's where you get very berry or jiao qi in Chinese or kake in Japanese. And overconsumption of alcohol and not enough exercise. Um, so, so that's the other set of explanations for the same disease. And um, actually some Chinese doctors at that time, you know, those doctors who were trained in the Chinese tradition believe that this medieval disease, you know, it disappeared in, in later Chinese medical texts, but it came back in this modern period. And they thought that that disease was actually reintroduced to China through Southeast Asia because of its miasmatic environment. So, so I think, I think that um, uh, 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 David's paper is fascinating because it revives all these uh, uh, interesting details and differences and, and how would you accommodate all these ex- explanations in, in a different context. So for me, looking at this uh, as a historian of um, food and nutrition uh, in Japan, I was particularly interested by uh, the the ways in which the sort of polarity of this, the morality of rice has shifted with um, Japanese political circumstances. So you had a, a brief period after the war uh, where the nutritional establishment took uh, a, a very anti-rice uh, sort of stance uh, for precisely some of the reasons that you've just talked about, right? That rice was the food of losers. Rice was why we had lost the war. We, you know, rice makes you stupid. Rice makes you... Asian, um, and this was this this reactionary uh, sort of navel gazing discourse about how we were still too Asian and weren't we're eating enough wheat and we're eating too much rice, and and so there's this this sort of brief period of that. And I'm curious, um, Lisa, for you reading this as somebody uh, you know looking at it from uh, post Soviet and post Soviet spaces, um, how, how that uh, those aspects of the chapter looked for you. Thanks. I think I want to go back to um, a phrase that Angela used when she was talking about David Arnold's chapter, and she said um, the racial aspects of medical disease. And I think that really captures the sense that um, what I really appreciate about David Arnold's paper is how food becomes a marker of the other, right? It gets used as a way to mark the other, the inferior other, and that could be a internal other, it can be an external other. And so for me, thinking about this through my own research in Russia, um, one of the things that I found is that Russians have conversations about healthy food and unhealthy food that are often calibrated through a sense of what is um, what they feel is an authentically Russian food versus what is a foreign food. And sometimes this is Um, posed as an authentically Russian food versus something that is identifiable as a Western food or American food, Um, fast food being one of those kind of subcategories or products that are made abroad in the West, you know, whether it's the United States or Western Europe or things that use Western technologies um, or Western ingredients. Um, And so it's, it's this way to distinguish both the the us and the them and frame it in terms of what's healthy, what's ideal, what's traditional, what's authentic. Uh, But it then can take on ethnic or racial or national um, 
qualities as well in terms of distinguishing, you know, what's what's ideal and, and, and these questions about the, the other, the inferior versus the superior. Um, and then just somebody who teaches food classes in the United States where these questions about um, food as a marker of the other come into play, we can also see in public health regimes in the United States very clearly how food comes to mark the ideal superior person and the inferior unhealthy person too, right? So there are especially the conversations around obesity or diabetes or other food-related diseases often come down to assumptions about what people are eating and why they're eating those things. And so that unhealthy people are eating this food, healthy people are eating this food, but then they become, um, they have these extra layers of race and class and um, gender sometimes that get added onto those things. And so those were some of the the issues that I was thinking about when I was um, working with David Arnold's paper. So it kind of hit me in different ways, thinking about my research in Russia and in the context of teaching in the the U.S. So uh, I want to jump into the uh, final section, uh, which focuses on, as you put it in the introduction, the ambiguities and malleability of foods. Uh, So again, we have uh, four chapters. Lauren Zhang shows how changing visions of the health and morality of tea track with geopolitical, cultural, and scientific developments in the modern relations between East Asia and the West. Um, Angela, your chapter uh, looks at the modern reinterpretation of vegetarianism in China. And so I, I, I want to talk about that, obviously, with you in just a moment. Um, and then Volker, is it Sheed or Shied? I'm sorry, I don't know, uh, looks at China as well, uh, specifically at the reconstruction of traditional Chinese medicinal knowledge and practice. And last, we have Hillary Smith's chapter, which tackles the moral meanings uh, which accrued to milk in modern China, especially as it relates to sort of population-wide tendencies toward lactose intolerance or tolerance. Um, so Angela, your chapter is chapter 10, uh, to build or to transform vegetarian China. Um, and I'm glad that it's the final chapter we're talking about because it nicely encapsulates uh, some of the big themes of the volume. And also, of course, of course, we have the expert uh, to, to speak with on this. So you write that um, traditional avoidance of a sort of excess of meat and dairy products in China was transformed in the 19th century into a modern understanding of vegetarianism as healthy uh, for the individual, for the nation. Um, And that this discourse sort of lost its luster again in the 1920s, giving way to an emphasis on more animal protein to maximize energy and moral strength. And I'm quoting you there. So so why is that? What does this trajectory uh, mean? Why why does this happen? And what can this tell us about the moralization of foods uh, in the process of modernization, uh, especially in Asia, especially in China, and its engagement in the world uh, in the late 19th and early 20th? centuries. Animal protein became very important in China in the, um, from the 1920s onward. Um, it's, I think the reason is, it's just, it's the, the, the trend just went with the political um, situation in China. Um, in 1919, there was this, what we call the May 4th movement or the new culture movement, which is um, something uh, especially the students and um, younger people who want to kind of reform China's culture uh, and to uh, take the the Western as a, as an ideal model. So we should have 
the same institutions as, as Westerners like democracy, and we should do away with autocracy, and we should eat you know, uh, more Western foods because they look stronger than us, we are weak, um, and so on and so forth. So, so this new culture movement, this May 4th movement, was something very big in the 1920s. And the person I, I wrote in the paper called Wu Xian, um, he's one of those May 4th activists who... Who, who who was um, you know came from a very good family and then went to America. I think he got a PhD in MIT or Harvard. I forgot. I think MIT, um, and then on 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 nutrition or something. And then and then he came back, and he would like to um, reform China's uh, 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 dietetics. So so he is one of the key figures who tried to introduce, convince the Chinese to eat more meat. To make themselves stronger, you know, we we, we talk about uh, Isumi's paper on on mother's milk uh, being able to produce uh, strong children, and for the Chinese, meat will produce stronger and more intelligent citizens. So so that's so that's the um, why um, that idea became um, prevalent in the 1920s, and then compare with that when when I look at the first revolutionaries, those who overthrew uh, the Manchus and established the Republican regime, these were more traditional scholars, like Sun Yat-sen um, and like uh, Li Shizhen, whom I talk about. These were traditional literati um, scholars uh, whose tradition, I mean, they love vegetarian food. They and 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 uh, one of the um, literati, uh, you know, this political activist, he was more or less a, a Buddhist, and so what they was, so what they want, what what they thought was best for China was continuing this vegetarian tradition and not eating meat because China at at its uh, state then could not afford to produce that much meat. And then they also quote some Christian uh, scientists saying that, you know, there are a lot of meats that are toxic and we should avoid toxic food. And China's could not produce that much meat anyway. So, so these two schools was kind of um, um, talking to each other or quarreling each other in the 1920s and 1930s. So that's the context of my story. And... Um, uh, in China, as I said, um, um, the traditional literati class was never too keen about meat consumption. If you look at traditional uh, recipes of, uh, of some famous literati, uh, the refined cuisine um, was almost always about making different kinds of vegetarian dishes, um, which is which fits the the um, the self image of the literati being always calm and not emotive and all of that. And, and sometimes with moderate amounts of meat, poultry, and seafood, but never in huge amounts, um, in contrast to what uh, Wu Xian recommended, that, we should, that the diet should be heavily rely, relying on animal protein, right? Um, so, so China has been stuck, actually. Um, now I, I get a little bit out of this, this paper and... And, and I, as, as I'm also paying attention to what's happening in China today, I think, I think what's happening today in, um, in terms of, you know, uh, whether China is 
should remain vegetarian or should eat more meat. I think it's it's very interesting and it's very relevant to China's Chinese politics today. And actually, China has been stuck with the association of wealth and strength with meat consumption since then, since the 1920s. At that time, China really didn't have the capacity of producing that much meat. So, so even though you know, Wuxian said you should meet, eat more meat, but only the wealthier people could do that. Um, but this idea actually creates the 21st century food problem for China, as it is now the biggest importer and consumer of soybean in the world. I, I'm sure you know that. Um, you know, uh, when 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 there was a quarrel between China and America, so so America would say, "Oh, you should buy that much soybean." You know, that's that's how they talk, um, and and that's the. Um, uh, I wouldn't say blackmail, but it, it's black. Uh, soybean is something you can use to blackmail China. Let's put it this way. Um, so the critical problem of food security was largely caused by the rapid and huge increase in meat consumption in China after 1990s. Uh, 1990s, yes. When the country began to reform and open up, meat consumption had increased more than 200% between then and now. And most of the soybean imported from America and from Brazil and other Latin American countries were GMO, genetic modified product products, um, which are cheap and produced massively, and they are used as uh, animal feed. So, so the soybean imported to China is not to make food for humans, but make food for animals. Um, and, the, and the desire uh, for meat has become a key problem for the environment, for China, and for other parts of the world as well, and for international politics and global trade. And some of the um, Chinese intellectuals are aware of that. And in and something that is new today, which is somewhat related to my chapter, is that I see an emergence of um, many uh, NGOs in China trying to push um, vegetarianism again in China. Um, and then the uh, soybean scientists in China is also, are also trying to um, uh, try not to increase the yield uh, of soybean by by modifying the the seeds, but by encouraging local food processes to use local beans to make traditional foods. So so that is a way of. Um, um, countering the, the pressure from from the West um, uh, 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 to, to China to um, uh, to push them to uh, import more soybeans, um, I think this is an ongoing story, and I don't know how it will end. Um, but I think that's a um, uh, that's an interesting uh, continuation of my story in this chapter. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I, I wonder uh, if you have a, a comment here, especially uh, in working in Soviet and post-Soviet spaces, uh, thinking about uh, grain uh, and cereals production uh, and questions of blackmail. Uh, seems a little bit timely. I wonder if you'd like to, to jump into that fray or not. Um, yes, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I'm prepared to... talk concretely about the the grain um, situation between Russia and Ukraine right now, you know, but I think 
one of the things that Angela's chapter helps us maybe think about with, say, what's going on in Ukraine at the moment is really thinking historically and how um, something so simple as a what people put on their plates and what they're eating is embedded in these deeper histories and these global politics and global economics. So food is never isolated. It's never on its own. It's always embedded in these much larger political movements. Um, and so, you know, soybeans, grain, countries, national economies, global economies are caught up in how foods are circulating around the world. Um, we have to, or not circulating around the world in the case of grain right now and with Ukraine. Um, and I think, you know, Angela kind of ended by saying, we don't know where this is going. And that I think is part of the the puzzle, right? Like how do we as scholars make sense of things? We don't know where it's going to be. We can, we can talk about what we're seeing now and what we've seen in the past, but to predict where something is going and what the consequences for these global economies are um, and how political movements, how countries are going to um, battle it out with one another to to say it that way um through food i think that's something that is historically and cross-culturally something that has gone on for a very long time a lot of global politics countries fight with each other through food what they allow to circulate what they withhold how they revalue that food um and so i think that's something that's really helpful coming out of angela's chapter um with that yeah, and I think overall um, in the book, you see both the external and internal conflicts uh, around food. And this is uh, one of the, the uh, you know, contributions of the book is to think about the ways um, that food is um, a, both a tool and a sort of object of various kinds of conflict, in addition to, of course, being uh, virtuous, nourishing, etc., that it, it is uh, by be, because it is food and because it is absolutely essential, it accrues all of these different meanings um, in different times and places, and often many different meanings in the same time and in the same place. Uh, so I wanted to uh, finish up here by first, of course, thanking both of you for, again, for uh, making the time to talk to us uh, today about the book and to uh, particularly the take on the difficult task of sort of representing the authors who were not able to join us. Um, and uh, as, as we always do here at the end, I wanted to uh, give each of you a moment to talk about what it is that you're working on now. I want to start with Lissa, uh, if you want to talk about uh, anything that you're working on that you'd like us to know about. Sure. I have two projects that I'm working on at the moment. Um, one is a project that I've been playing with for a very long time, and it's kind of been inspired by working with Angela on this volume as well, thinking about the digestive politics of Russian food systems and kind of starting with the 18th, 19th centuries into the contemporary period to think about how Russian, um, ordinary Russians, Russian health reformers, Russian politicians have tried to cultivate um, a very particular national microbiome. Um, and so how the most internal processes of digestion um, actually are caught up in larger political ideas about ideal people, ideal states. And so that's a, a project I've been working on for a while, and I'm, I'm 
doing a little bit more digging, trying to extend that. And then I have um, a second project that was that came out of the pandemic when it was hard to go do research anywhere. And this is my fun project on the side on animal rescue in the United States. So thinking um, some of my older work has been on food relief and um, cultural ideals of care and compassion. And that got me thinking more generally about care and compassion for others, including animals. Um, when I was completing my last research in Russia, there it was a movement in Moscow to create an animal shelter. And I was really intrigued by how um, there was this movement to create an animal shelter and how people who were coming to food aid programs were using the food that they were receiving to feed stray animals. And so I'm, I'm thinking more broadly about animal rescue, but probably in the U.S. right now because of where I can do my research. No, oh, that's fascinating. Um, and it's an, it's an interesting uh, diver, sort of divergent project, but I'm glad you have a, a fun project to work on as well. Um, how about you, Angela? Uh, what is it that you're working on these I days? I also have two projects, like Lisa, and uh, uh, one uh, is a, another edited volume, uh, which I work with colleagues here uh, in Hong Kong and in Australia, and um, it's it's a it's a book on food technoscience. Um, it's a it's mostly about the industrialization of food um, in the modern period and how that. Um, industrialization transformed food in different ways in also always in the East Asian context because this is a, uh, a, a part of a, a bigger um, collaborative project that uh, I have I have been leading um, on on um, technology so um, so this part is on food technology and and um, and I myself have um, has a chapter on um, the transformation of um, you know, or the attempts to transform uh, soy sauce technology uh, in the early 20th century. And uh, my second project is, is a monograph that I'm writing on the history of soy sauce in China. And um, I finished some chapters and, and the tentative title is How Soy Sauce Shaped Modern China. Um, my point is to show that soy sauce as a very common, popular food uh, in every stage of its um, history, the, the history of this continent um, has, has played a significant part in, in the history of China itself. So, um, so I have finished some chapters. I have to finish. I hope I could finish writing the first draft by the end of this year. Well, I will definitely be looking forward <laughs> to that, um, especially, so that, it, seems, so, yeah, it so, sounds so, like one of those and, and, and that monograph has a chapter on soybean. That's why I was talking at length on soybeans. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a project where uh, you take one of those everyday objects uh, that we don't think enough about, right? That sort of becomes transparent part of the environment that uh, we fail to notice. And once you start noticing it, you can't help noticing it everywhere, right? Uh, so I'm definitely looking forward to that when you're done. Uh, and maybe you'll come back on the podcast uh, when that book is out as well. Uh, but for now, I want to thank you again, both uh, for making the time um, and adjusting your schedules. Uh, I think we have some people very early, some people very late. Uh, and I know that's uh, always a struggle to, to get these kind of conversations going, but I'm glad we did it. Um, and thank you so much again for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us.